Good morning. I'm Jane McCulley. I've been coming to Cross Point with my family for about 17 years, maybe. Um, my husband David and I are Cross Point uh, Covenant members, and I will be reading Psalm 48 this morning, the um, ESV translation, and it is titled Zion, the City of Our God, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. In her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as a as of a woman in labor. By the east winds you shattered the ships of Tarshish. But as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, and go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. It is great to be back with you. Uh, my name is Dan Loggins. I'm one of the pastors at Calvary Baptist in Normal. I'm uh, good friends with both Daves that are on staff, and I want to start off by thanking you for the way you're serving Dave and Heather uh, with this sabbatical. Uh, that is so encouraging to hear uh, that you have given them this time to renew uh, and to refresh their souls as, as they have served you so well over the last several years. So uh, I'm Thank you for, for doing that. That is evidence of God's grace in your, your life. Well, before we open up uh, Psalm 48, let's look to God in prayer this morning. Father, uh, we have heard your word read, and we have sung your praises already. We know that you are good in all things, and we are amazed by your goodness to us. We're amazed by your goodness in so many different ways. And sometimes we fail to see that. And yet we're reminded here in your word how great you are, how amazing you are, and that you in your kindness have moved towards us in the person of Jesus. That though we have been separated from you because of our sin, and in your holiness and greatness you cannot be near us, yet you have drawn near to us in Jesus Christ, and you have sacrificed him on our behalf. He has taken our place so that we might experience grace and forgiveness and be restored to fellowship with you. So that is why we sing these songs. That is why this morning we open your word, because you have done this great work in our lives. And so, because of the gospel, we lean forward this morning to hear once again of your greatness. We lean forward to see in your word the amazing truth 
of who you are. And then go and tell others. Go and tell the next generation that this, oh, this is our God. Freshly affect us this morning by your word. Stir us to that end to tell others of who you are in your name. Amen. Well, have you ever been homesick? Like, I mean, truly homesick. I know that there is this common feeling that many will have when they're away from home of this longing to be back home. So in just a couple months, there are going to be thousands, millions of freshmen who are coming on to the university campuses. And for the probably the very first time, they will experience that beloved feeling that we call homesickness. Uh, I was looking at some details, and I think it said somewhere close to 300 uh, freshmen are going to be coming to Eureka College in just the next couple of uh, months here. And they are going to step on campus, and then as the weeks go forward, they're going to start to long to be back home. Well, my story of going to college was a little bit different than most. I lived on my college campus, but I lived in my own home with my parents, my three siblings, and my grandmother. And so my experience as a freshman was totally different than maybe many of you had. Uh, I had breakfast prepared for me in the morning when I woke up. I didn't have to scrounge and find quarters to make sure I could do the laundry. My mom was still doing it for me, and I know you all feel sorry for me uh, at this, this point that that's what I had to go through. Uh, but I didn't really have that feeling those first couple months of college of homesickness. But the summer uh, after my freshman year, I started to experience homesickness when I traveled with a singing group for our, our college, uh, and I was stuck in a van <laughs> with seven other students, got tired and annoyed with them. Uh, I'm sure they got tired and annoyed with, with me as well, but I started to have that longing to be back home. I was homesick, and so yes, the phone calls came. Mom, Dad, I would just love to be back home. Can you come, come visit? Some of you are familiar with that feeling, but if you ask anyone who is homesick or has ever experienced homesickness, what it is that they're truly missing in that moment, what they're truly longing for, most of them won't answer, I just want to be back in my own bedroom. Uh, now, again, some of them might say that, but that's not all they'll say. Or they won't say, I just, I miss that comfortable sofa we have in the basement. You know, the one with the soda stains and it kind of smells like used uh, old popcorn? Uh, I really miss that. I just want to, I want to be on that, that couch. No, most will say, that they miss someone, not just something. Oh, we might long to be back in our own bed, but that's because there's some sense of security, not because of that bed, but because of who we are with. We long for the security of being with someone. Well, here in Psalm 48, the song we hear from the lips of the psalmist, the sons of Korah, is not necessarily a ballad of the homesick, but it's a song nevertheless that centers on a longing for being with someone, not just being somewhere. Now, the truth be told, as we just heard that psalm read, you may have at first heard that this seemed to be something about a, a psalm about a certain place. And we heard a lot about the city, the holy mountain, Mount Zion. But what we come to find at the end of this psalm 
is that, as one commentator notes, the psalm is not in praise of Zion except as God's abode. And so as we come to verse 14, when we're expecting a crowning glory of the city, and we have heard all about this Mount Zion, the city of the great king, we hear no more of it, the commentator notes. Only we hear of God. This is God. You see, Psalm 48 is, you could say, the third stanza of one larger psalm starting back with Psalm 46. And it exalts the greatness of God throughout these three psalms. The Psalm 46, the first stanza, focuses on God as our great refuge and strength in the midst of trouble. Psalm 47, the second stanza, focuses on God as the great king who reigns over all nations. And then here, this morning in Psalm 48, we have the proper response to the greatness of God. And so while these psalms don't explicitly say to us what the circumstances are from which this psalm springs forth, most theologians believe that they're the result of God's decisive victory for the Israelites over Sennacherib's invasion of Judah, recorded for us back in 2 Kings 19. Thus, Israel then experienced God's protecting presence And he had proven himself to be their mighty fortress, to be the victorious king for them. And so Psalm 48 is a call to respond to the greatness of God. When God makes himself known throughout creation, we are called to worship. And so Psalm 48 unfolds for us the correct response to God's greatness. And that is, first of all, great joy or or gladness. The second response is that of tormenting fear, or you could say a gravity in when we behold the greatness of God. And then third, a a passionate telling, a sharing of this greatness of God, a going. Well, let's look at this passage, and as we look into Psalm 48, we'll see that God reveals to us this big idea, this one truth, this overarching truth that the greatness of God must be shared with the next generation. The greatness of God must be shared with the next generation. For when we experience his protecting presence, that should ignite within us great joy that we just can't keep to ourselves. When we have tasted and seen that our God is good, how can we keep quiet about his goodness? How can we not have a passion for telling someone, this is God, our God forever? And ever. And yet, we all know the sad truth is we are far too often easily pleased with other things. We are far too often satisfied with the things of this world and don't focus on the greatness of God. We don't long for God's presence. We aren't homesick for Him. And so the result is we have that failure to passionately share Him. C.S. Lewis profoundly notes. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He concludes, we are far too easily pleased. And so the question we must ask ourselves as we study Psalm 48 is, who am I sharing the greatness of God with? 
Have I tasted and seen his greatness, his goodness? Am I overwhelmed with gladness and joy? And then am I going and am I sharing this with others, that this is who our God is? For when we truly experience the greatness of God, we cannot keep quiet. So notice with me, first of all, the greatness of God produces great joy. In verses 1 through 3, we hear of this great delight. He is the joy of all the earth. He has made himself known. And then as we jump down to verse 9, we see that again. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. See, the psalmist begins by extolling the greatness of the Lord and his worthiness to be praised as he overlooks this city of Jerusalem. And the fact that he uses this personal covenant name of God here, Lord, which we have in most of our English translations, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, is it can't go unnoticed. This is something very important for the listeners, the, the first audience of this psalm. Here, using this word Lord, this name Lord, what is the Hebrew word Yahweh, I am, would immediately bring up into the hearer's mind that instance that happened way back in what we, we have recorded for us in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is there in the wilderness and all of a sudden sees this burning bush that isn't consumed at all. And yet from that bush, a word uh, comes forth from God. And he, God gives Moses and the people of Israel his name, Yahweh, I will be with you. I will deliver you out of slavery from Egypt, but not only deliverance, but I will be, I will have a presence with you. And so his presence would then be proven time and time again as we follow the Israelite story throughout the Old Testament. Time and time again, God would show up and he would bring them the victory and then he would be with them, being their protecting presence. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. And this is what they would be telling each generation over and over again. This is our God. Even the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, was evidence of God's presence and provision over the people of Israel. The city itself was surrounded with a great wall and citadels that provided security for the people within. All of that was not just great in and of itself. No, its greatness was because God was in their midst. God had made himself known as a fortress through this city. Again, in verse 9, we see that God makes himself known, not only in the city, but in his temple. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. You see, this was that place of worship that the people of Israel would come to where they would bring their sacrifices and where the high priest would enter the holy of holies to offer sacrifices as sin offerings before God. And this place was a simple reminder and a picture of God's presence with his people, but also that there was a barrier in between them, that someone was necessary to step through that veil. It was a reminder of God's steadfast love on them. And so this is what God's people would dwell on, that they would think on the psalmist states. They have meditated on his steadfast love. 
Now, when we hear that word love, many of us have different things going on in our minds. Maybe even last night you said, oh man, I love that dinner. That steak was amazing. Uh, we may say we love a certain sports team. Like I'm from Wisconsin and I know I'm going to make some enemies now. I love the Packers. Oh, wow. Okay, good, good. I thought I would get a big boo after that or something like that. We say love a lot and that's not the idea though here. <laughs> this is not that kind of I love a steak, I love pizza, I love the Packers, kind of love that the psalmist use here. No, the, this word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed, which is a different kind of love than that, you know, fluttery heart kind of love. This is the I do kind of love that we experience in a marriage ceremony when the husband and wife stand before each other and they say, I do, I, I promise in sickness and in health. I will always be here. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. The Lord is one that keeps his word. He says, you are my people, I am your God, and he makes this covenant love with them. This is a, a stunning proclamation here that we have in the psalm of the steadfast love of God again and again. And as we go throughout the psalmist. Uh, the Psalms, we'll hear of the steadfast love over and over, of a God who promises to flex his power and might and holiness in order to love his covenant people unconditionally. You see, this is the truth about our God that produces great joy, great gladness. As your name, the psalmist says, as Yahweh, the covenant promise, the covenant-keeping God of I do kind of love, O oh God, so your praises reach to the end of the earth. His righteousness brings gladness. His judgments cause his people to rejoice. You see, friends, this is who God is. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. So I have to ask us as we're going through this psalm, is God your joy? Is he your gladness? Do you long for his presence? Like the psalmist encourages us to do here. Are these the words of your lips? Great are you, Lord, greatly to be praised. I long to be in your presence. The psalm continues, and we not only see that the greatness of God produces great joy, but also the greatness of God, on the other hand, produces a tormenting fear. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. While the people of God are finding great joy in the presence of God, the psalmist shows us here that his opponents shudder in tormenting fear in his presence. Now, there are all kinds of different responses to fear. Some people run away. Some people scream. Others faint. I have to be honest with you, those fainting goat videos on YouTube are hilarious, aren't they? How many of you have ever fainted in fear? Uh, we play at home every once in a while with my four children, uh, hide-and-go-seek. Uh, and every once in a while, and I usually this isn't like we announce it, it's usually one of those things that all of a sudden I just go and I just hide. And they're like, where'd dad go? And they're trying to find me, you know, dad, 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 dad. And then finally I jump out of a closet uh, and scare them. Some of them run away. Uh, others fall to the ground, not fainting 
yet, though maybe that is a, a goal of mine, uh, there's different responses to fear, right? You, you get scared and you run away. Uh, you get scared and you scream. What is the response here to the power, the greatness of God? Well, these kings who have assembled, they come together, they're astounded, they're in panic, and they run, they flee. The psalmist describes what happens here is that they, they freeze in fear. And notice that it, again, isn't just the city of Jerusalem and its man-made defenses that cause this kind of fear and trembling. No, these are seasoned conquerors who have taken down much bigger walls, much bigger fortified cities than Jerusalem. So what is it that stops them in their tracks? What causes this panic, this trembling, this Agony, as we continue on at the, uh, in, in verse 6, the agony like that of a woman in labor. What's well, none other than God himself. Powerful, majestic. Again, the story of the Israelites show us this time and time again where God's greatness terrifies the nations. Again, if we go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 15, Moses recounts the effects of God's presence on his enemies, the Egyptians, as the family of Israel is delivered from slavery. In verse 1 of chapter 15 of Exodus, we read, For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then verse 16, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Oh, this is our God, to be feared above all other gods, write the psalmist in Psalm 96. His greatness produces this tormenting fear. And now, some of you here this morning say, well, I still kind of sense that, that fear when I think about God. Uh, I, I, I can see God as great, and as you've said, Dan, already holy and majestic, far away from us, and in our sin, we are separated from him. Because I have to believe in a setting of this size, there's someone here this morning that still would find themselves in opposition to God, separated from him. If that's you this morning, first of all, let me thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for coming and, and worshiping with us, but not just coming, but hearing what we have sung all about, what we are hearing in God's word. Because I know that as you've walked in this door, that you've come into a place where a church that desperately wants you to hear the good news of the gospel. The good news that you do not have to continue to be separated from God. The good news that you don't have to have this tormenting fear because of the holiness of God, but that you would hear the good news that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has broken down that veil that separated the Israelites from the Holy of Holies. And he, through Jesus Christ, has become good news that, yes, our God is terrifying, but in the person of Jesus Christ, we are brought near. For in his holiness, we as rebellious humans, created by him in his image, turned away from him. And yet he came to us. Jesus Christ, the true temple, full of grace and truth. And so, friend, if you're here this morning, we would love to hear that you are turning to faith, turning in faith to Jesus Christ, that you would hear this good news and you would repent of your sins and that you would experience and taste and see the goodness of God this morning. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, friends, this is the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth for you and for me. Where we have failed, Jesus never fails. Where the Israelites failed, and boy, did they fail over and over again. Jesus never failed. He died so that we would not experience the full terror of God in his wrath for eternity in the lake of fire called hell, totally separated from him. But instead, Jesus took upon himself that wrath. Didn't stay dead, though. He rose again, conquering sin and death. And that is the greatness that's on display in the good news of the gospel. He rose again to give us new life in him so we would have eternal life that starts this very day and continues on forever and ever. Friend, that's the good news. Come to Jesus today. This is our God, our God forever and ever. The psalmist tells us it produces great joy. In his opponents, it produces great fear. But notice thirdly this morning, towards the end of Psalm 48, that it not only produces great joy and tormenting fear, but it produces a, a passion to tell others. Look at verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion, go around her number, uh, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. In what is perhaps the greatest modern day classic Christmas movie of today and maybe of all time, there's a scene when Buddy the Elf burst into his father's conference room exclaiming, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. And I know you all wanted me to twist around when I did that, but sorry. <laughs> the scene happens right after Buddy goes on that date with Jovi, and like all those who are young and in love, he just cannot not share about his love. And you've been in that situation before, haven't you? Maybe not <laughs> Buddy's situation. Maybe it wasn't after the first date when you burst into home and said, I'm in love. But there's a similar situation. Something great has happened to you. Uh, maybe it's uh, coming home and you just found out that you're getting a raise at work and you burst in, I'm getting a raise. Yes, we can go to Disney this summer. Uh, maybe it's the birth of your, your first grandchild or the birth, birth of your first uh, child. You name it. Something so exciting to you that you just have to tell someone else. And that completes our joy. When we tell someone else, it completes our joy. You go and you share, and that's the encouragement the psalmist is concluding with here, that we would go, we would know the greatness of God, we would have this gladness and great joy, but we don't just keep it to ourselves. No, we go and we tell the next generation. He tells them to go around the city. Notice how the enemy wasn't even able to leave a mark on its towers, ramparts, and citadels. They're all in the same pristine condition as they were before the enemy's attacks. How? Was it because they were so mighty? Because of God's protecting presence. He again is going back time and time again to the greatness of God, but notice that the psalmist doesn't just stop there. He's not content with just gawkers at all of the greatness of this city and how God has displayed his greatness. He's not interested in God's people becoming mere bystanders to God's work. And so he tells them why they should go about the city. Why should they look at what God has done? 
Why should they praise him? And do you see it? There at the end of verse 13. Walk about Zion. Go around her number. Uh, go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. Many, what maybe would be modern day American church translations, may read things like this. Go around and make sure the buildings continue to stay pristine. Go around and Report back to the pastors so that they can do all of the work. Uh, go around, look at all the city, and hire more pastors and more staff so they can do the work of the ministry for you. That's not what the psalmist says here, is it? He doesn't tell the children of Israel that, you know what, go look around and then go back into your homes and just say, wow, that was great. All right, hopefully everybody can keep us safe a little bit longer here. Uh, this is not like the modern-day church here in America. What the psalmist tells us to do here is to get in the game, to be a part of sharing the greatness of God, to not sit back and gawk at the greatness of God, to not rest on our laurels, so to speak, and just say, okay, this is good. We're safe and secure. No, the point of all of this in Psalm 48, to seeing the greatness of God, finding great joy in it, to hearing of the tormenting fear that it brings upon his opponents, the nations, to going around the city once again and, and, and experiencing the greatness and, and knowing the steadfast love of God in the temple. It's not just so that we can be comfortable and safe. No, he says, so that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Here's what the greatness of God produces. Joy and fear which results in telling. We go and we proclaim this greatness. We tell the next generation, guess what? This is what our God's like. Guess what? This is what God has done for us. See, this is what Paul will instruct the church, will instruct Titus to do on that island of Crete with his church, to have older men and women teach and train the younger men and the younger women. It's what Jesus says at the end of Matthew, go and make disciples. You see, making disciples is not just something that Jesus came up with there. No, Jesus has said, hey, this has been my mission for years. Psalm 48, even going farther back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it, it has a similar call to action for the people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You see, this has been the mission of God from the very beginning, that we would go and we would tell others. And so how about it, friend? Does the joy that you have in the greatness of God does that spill out in your lips as you tell the next generation? Do you have someone younger than you that you are pulling in close so that you can tell them, hey, this is God. This is our God forever and ever. He will guide you. You see, this isn't the work of the elite. This isn't the work of those who are only compensated. No, this is the work of all the saints, from the freshmen to the seniors. So who are you telling 
about the greatness of God. Who will you tell this week about the greatness of God? Now, most of you will have coffee at some point this week. Most of you will eat a meal, just guessing, some point this week. Who can you bring in over coffee or over a meal and share, hey, this is, this is what God is doing in my life. Let me hear about what he's doing in yours. Who can you, in your relationships with those outside the church, bring into coffee or a meal and say, can I share with you about the greatness of God? Who can you invite to join you as you find joy in God? Who can you invite to come into your home and you can say, hey, look around. This isn't something we've built. This is what God is doing in our midst. You see, we can't miss out on the blessing of being or receiving disciple-making, of telling or hearing of God's greatness displayed in the life of one of our brothers or sisters. We can't, we can't lose the blessing of going and sharing with a lost world the greatness of our God. He is too great to keep quiet about. In 1956, five young missionaries were spared to, or speared to death by the Aka Indians. Most of you have heard of the story of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, men who knew the passion of sharing and telling others, knew the greatness of God, could not keep quiet about it. But another gentleman that day uh, was also speared to death. His name was Roger Udarian, uh, someone who hasn't been written as much about. But that fateful day, his wife Barbara wrote in her journal these words. Tonight, the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore those. God gave me this verse two days ago, and she quoted Psalm 48 and verse 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide forever, even unto death. As I came to face to face, writes his wife, Barbara, with the news of Roger's death, my heart was filled with praise. Wow. How in that moment could her heart be filled with praise? And she says, because he was worthy of his homegoing. Raj was homesick. He knew he had tasted and seen the greatness of God and so he was willing to die even for the gospel going forward as he would tell others of the greatness of God. And so she was filled with praise because Raj was doing what God had called him to do. You see, friends, knowing that this God is our God gives us a sense of belonging for we are recipients of his steadfast love through Jesus Christ. Knowing that this God is our God gives us a sense of purpose in spreading his greatness to the next generation. And knowing that this God is our God gives us a sense of peace, for he will guide us forever. Friends, this is God. Our God forever and ever. Let us go and let us tell the next generation. Father, I pray this morning that through your word, that it was what was quick and powerful. It would discern the thoughts and intents of all of our hearts as we've heard it. And you have shown each and every one of us your greatness, 
and how we may be failing to find satisfaction in you and you alone. And so if that is any one of us, God, I pray that we would turn in repentance and, and we would recenter ourselves on who you are as a good and great and glorious king. But God, that not only has we seen the great joy that we can have in your greatness, but also the fear that comes for those who are opponents of you. And even in that, God, if there's one here this morning that still feels this separation, they understand that they have never turned in faith to you, repenting of their sins, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would do that work in their hearts so that they may turn today and know that this is their God. And God, I pray for each and every one of us that when we experience your goodness and greatness, that we would want to go and tell the next generation, that we would not be just content with experiencing your greatness for ourselves, but like the psalmist encourages us, that as we look around and we see what you have done, that we would go and we would tell the next generation. We would tell them that this is God, our God forever and ever, who guides us. And so may we go from this place as sent ones into our workplaces, into our homes, into our neighborhoods to tell others, oh, I've tasted and seen that God is good. Let me share him with you. Do that for your glory and the joy of all people in you and in you alone, in your name. Amen. To close our service this morning, I just want to read a few verses from Psalm 89, verses 14 through 16. It says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Happy are the people who know the joyful shout. Lord, they walk in the light from your face. They rejoice in your name all day long, and they are exalted by your righteousness. Let's be encouraged by who God is and how he loves us. Let's go and share that this week as we uh, walk with others, interact with others, and I just pray that you would have a blessed week in the Lord.